Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, это Prevail и ваш ведущий Грег Олег. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. Am I doing that well enough? I feel like, I don't know, when I'm doing it, I feel good about it. And then I listen to it and I think it doesn't sound maybe radio announcery enough. Like, I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. I don't know. Maybe I have to work on it a little bit. But I am Greg Oliar. This really is Prevail. And I really am welcoming you. I have two of my favorite people on. Lincoln's Bible, who's been on the show before in the pilot episode. And somebody who worked with her years ago, started working with her years ago on a site called SitJourno, doing research and exposing the fuckery, what they call the fuckery, Catherine Louise Newfeld, better known as Lou New. And we have a little joke, LB and I, we say, who knew? Lou New, because Lou New is one of these people that just figured stuff out really early. She's smart, and she had time to work on this stuff, and she was able to see patterns, and she's sort of a Nostradamus. It's one of these things where I go through and research stuff, and I think I figured something out, and she'd had it, you know, (laughs) pegged long before I did. So who knew? Lou knew. Pretty interesting conversation we're going to have with her. LB is going to come on first. We talk about Woody Allen, the Allen v. Farrow doc, and especially Alan Dershowitz and his role in all of that. And then later on in the show, we're going to talk to Lou New about what she calls the three dudes, who are three people who, behind the scenes, very powerful men, who help give us Donald Trump. That's Jeff Zucker, um, who's president of CNN News. That's Ari Emanuel, the super-duper agent. And it's Mark Burnett, who was the showrunner for The Apprentice and Celebrity Apprentice. So that's a good conversation that we're going to have a little bit later. I'm going to start the show today. I was looking through my phone at some point, looking at voice messages to see what I could delete. And I found one two years ago when my son was 14. As some sort of punishment, I think I gave him my book, Dirty Rubles, to read. 
And I said, if you read the book, I'll let you, whatever. You can be ungrounded or whatever he did wrong. I can't remember. And he, <laughs> I'm just going to play this, his review of Dirty Rubles. Your book is boring. I'm one third of the way through and I can't read it anymore. I'm tired of reading about Kushner and his brush of shit and like Trump. He met with the brother. Obama didn't meet with the Russians. His Michael, whatever. I don't care. I get it. Trump bad or whatever. I don't want to read it anymore. I read 30 pages of the, what, 90. And it's just the same Russia, Russia bad. Trump, Russia bad. Trump is a bad person. Yada, yada, yada. I get it. I know. You tell me everything. I don't care if you're going to quiz. I don't care if I fail. I'm done. I read it. I know. I understand. I don't care. I don't want to learn anything. You see, like, no. Book, no. Tired. I'm going to sleep. Okay, so that was my son's review of, of Dirty Rubles. Obviously, he didn't like it very much. Fortunately, other people did. You could still buy the book on Amazon. I'm, I'm still going with the discounted rate. And it holds up pretty well. I wrote it in, in May of 2018, and I'm pretty pretty pleased with how it has held up and stood the test of time. All right, enough prattling on from me. We'll be right back with Lincoln's Bible. Reporting from the Principality of Liechtenstein, this is RT News. Tonight witnessed Presidents Biden and Putin jousting in a much ballyhooed debate after the fearless leader of all the Russias challenged the American skeleton to a trial of virility and manhood. I said, look in your eyes, and I don't think you have a soul. And look back at me and said, we understand each other. He says, I killed this man or other man. But I say, how do you know this man did not fall on a stick three times? And this from a country at war with carbohydrates. The scene in the Vaduz Thunderdome was raucous after Kremlin complaints that U.S. fact-checkers had exaggerated the size differential at the traditional pre-debate weighing and measuring of the penises. President Putin going so far as to call the results rigged. Senior White House officials, speaking on background, offered no substantive comment other than an audible chuckle. Stay tuned for more highlights and bloopers after the American podcast Prevail, to whose host we extend warmest polonium-free wishes for excellent good health. This is RT News, reminding you to verify but trust. And this from a country that keeps Britney Spears in the gulag. Okay, so we're here with Lincoln's Bible. How are you? I'm okay. Okay, good. Just okay? Not not terrific? <laughs> I don't feel terrific. Yeah. I don't think but we're going to feel, gonna feel okay. yeah. We're not going to feel terrific until people are in prison. I mean, that's just how it's going to be. <laughs> uh, I wanted to have yeah. you on. I wanted to have you on because this week I wrote the piece about Woody Allen running the op uh, on Mia Farrow. And brought up a lot of things. I think questions about 
ops and questions about that whole situation. The characters, the recurring characters that, that are involved. I mean, one of the things that blew my mind researching that piece was that Alan Dershowitz, of all people, was Mia Farrow's lawyer. I mean, I, I just, my, my head exploded a little bit because, yeah, you know, this guy's the lawyer for all these sleazebags. And he's also credibly accused pedophile. Then, yeah. come to find out, Mia Farrow never hired Alan Dershowitz. He just sort of, a family friend sent him there and he just started yakking like he oh does because he wants to be on TV. And they had to basically tell him to shut it down, which is even crazier, but more consistent we, with the... I just have, I have so many questions around all of that because I didn't know either until you told me. And you told me right before you released the, you know, you dropped the, the piece. And... I just was so bothered by that. But really, then to find out that he wasn't ever hired, he just inserted himself. Yeah. Uh, why? Why? And I, I know it's like, well, you know, the guy obviously never found a camera he didn't like, but he's like Rudy Giuliani in that way, right? Exactly. They just, Absolutely. They can't not get in front of the camera and start spewing this stuff. But he doesn't do it all the time. He's very specific, <laughs> Alan. Yeah. Right? With where he shows up, how he inserts himself, what position he's taking, always twisting the narrative. And it's yeah, early on. I have a lot of questions about why, what he was doing. It's early on. Yeah. It's ni- 92. Is It's, it's post-Klaus von Bülow, but before all the other high-profile yeah. things. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> post Klaus von Bülow. I mean, that's sort of, you know, I, you, you kind of make you kind of make your mark with that one. It's like, I, you know, I don't I don't know how it gets any more just, you know, sinister in terms of let's let's have some sinister mustache twirling uh, clients here. <laughs> um, you know, which you know, the, everyone has a right to representation. Certainly, I just I never quite know what Alan Dershowitz specialty in the law is it's always changing right so is he a criminal defense attorney is he a constitutional law he likes to chime in on that um in that situation it was matrimonial law right he's he's not a matrimonial lawyer he's not that either and he's not Um, a member of the connecticut bar he's not a member of the connecticut bar for the allen case so you know why 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 What's going on there? I feel like there's something going on there. I really do. That's my sense. The other thing that I didn't put into the piece because there just was no room for it is that Woody Allen's lawyer at the time, uh, Elkin Abramowitz, was hired recently by Andrew Cuomo. So it's uh, the same people, you know, keep popping up again and again. And God, the theme. That that makes sense to me, though, because... That sounds like there's a lawyer that's really, really good at what they specialize in. I just don't know what that is for Dershowitz. <laughs> yeah, the Dershowitz thing is really strange. It's it, it's it's very strange because he's the guy that took what he learned from the Woody Allen op and just applied it to all his subsequent ops, his cases, as it was OJ or Harvey Weinstein or Trump. Well, Epstein is the one that really 
sticks out for me when it comes to Alan. I talked to him like I know him. I don't know this person, but I'm going to use his first name because the last name annoys me to call him Dersh or whatever. I don't like it. Um, But there's something about his, and he had this, the stuff that he wrote, when did he do that writing at the time about, or, or at any time? I don't know what it was. Was it at this time or later when Alan Dershowitz was writing about why statutory rape of, should be, the age should be lowered, that, you know, teenagers really were sexually active, that it was unfair to the... Yeah, um, he did write that. I think that was pretty early on. Um, was it? Okay. And this is a guy, this is a guy who prances around naked on the beach at Martha's Vineyard, but kept his pants on at Jeffrey Epstein's house, which seems like maybe the, you know, the opposite. Maybe he he mixed them up in his mind or something. Um, uh, and then claims that he was massaged there by some 40-year-old woman. And was there ever that. a 41-year-old woman at Epstein's house? I mean, <laughs> he thought uh, her name was Olga. Yeah. I've tweeted about this once a long, long time ago, and... It sounded like that uh, that Barry Manilow song, the rhythm of it, like her name was Olga. She was, a, <laughs> and I was like, um, yeah. He's, he has a lot of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, he inserts himself into many situations. He has uh, some accusers. He uh, likes to represent. I guess it's again, it's not always criminal defense, right? So. It's it's odd. Like he he inserted himself in that first impeachment trial. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Absolutely. Um, and so he, there he's doing constitutional law. He's just he's all over the show with everything. And he was, you know, he was Jonathan Pollard's attorney. I still can't get past that. Tell everybody who Jonathan Pollard is, because people might well, not know. Jo- uh, Jonathan Pollard was an, uh, a spy for Israel that had worked his way into our intelligence services and sort of very much in the traditional way that people think about spies and spice hunting. And like, if you know that, it that our adversaries or our allies or us United States seek to send our spies or our allies and adversaries send their spies into the intelligence services for other countries, right? That somehow it's just always maintained in that one specific world, which is not accurate. The spies are everywhere. They get into business, they get into entertainment, they get into law. You know, they, there's ages, ages of a foreign power. But Pollard was one that was an Israeli spy inside our own intelligence services. And what he ended up, how he ended up spying and what he got his hands on what was the NSA? He wasn't in the NSA, but he got his hands on the NSA's sort of very deep manual on how we do our signal intelligence. And that's what he was caught giving back to Israel, right? Mm-hmm. Now, he also gave a lot of classified information over to, uh, I think he did some for South Africa. He was like, he seemed like he was a guy for sale, but I think he was always being charged to do what he did and tasked to do what he did by Israel. So we caught him. And then he he was tried and he was prosecuted. This is very, very rare. We don't, the United States doesn't normally go after Israel's spies where we find them here. We certainly didn't do what we needed to do with Epstein. That's for sure. Yeah. So it, it's, uh, it, to prosecute him, you know, that puts an allied relationship sort of on the line. Um, and Alan Dershowitz was his attorney. 
And I think you have to go to a place where I always ask this. I'm not making an accusation. I'm just asking this question of folks who may, who probably know a lot more than I do. Is Israel, Israeli intelligence, are, are they the kind of um, intelligence agencies and nation state that would just let any old attorney, right, be the attorney for their biggest spy to ever got caught and was being caught and prosecuted by the United States? I just, <laughs> I got to go yeah. there. I'm sorry. It's like you have to, you have to ask that. Right. Because here this Pollard would be sharing all this information about how sure. he got in there and what, what was going on with him, with his attorney. That's a very special relationship, that attorney client relationship. And so I just have a lot of questions around Alan Dershowitz around all of that. Like, how why was Israel so comfortable with him being this this attorney, the attorney for Pollard? Why not? Why not someone else? Why Dershowitz? And then you kind of I kind of ask, well. Was he the primary attorney? He certainly did all the interviews. Or was he inserting himself in the situation like he does? Mm. Like, but still, even in that, even if it was that kind of thing that, that Alan tends to do with just showing up and saying, I'm going to give attorney, you know, as if I am the attorney for Mira Farrow when he wasn't. I, you don't mess around with Israel that way. And certainly not with, the, with their big spy that we caught. So that was Pollard. There's a lot everyone can look up on him. Uh, uh, on him. He was just released and we fought his release, but Trump let him get out early and uh, he flew back to, uh, I think on Shelly Adelson's plane, right? Mm. Uh, when Shelly was still alive, he flew back to, to Israel and BB met him on the tarmac. Yeah. 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 It's a big deal. It's a really big, dirty deal. Oh, it's a, it's a good point about, okay. about Dershowitz. And then going from that to, not only being the the attorney for, but being friends with, clearly friends with and pals with Epstein is is yeah. Called nothing. him his best friend. Yeah, he's on the record calling him his best friend. He he would take all his stuff for uh, Alan would take things to Jeffrey Epstein for Epstein to read over and look at any kind of papers he was writing, things he was involved with. He 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 loved him. He really did. And so what happened with. Woody Allen and Mia Farrow happened after Pollard, but before Epstein. And we're not sure when Epstein and Woody Allen became friends because they were also friends. Um, friends. They Epstein moved into the, the really fancy building there on 71st street in Manhattan in 1996. Yeah. Yeah. I think he, did he own it in 96? But I, he was, he was already very much involved with Leslie Wexner and that was Wexner's property. And he he bought it. He didn't buy it. I think Wexner bought it in 94 and it was renovated for two years and Epstein moved it in 96. I think that's the, which is before, which is after the Woody Allen stuff happens. So chronologically. Um, So we don't, we're not really sure about that. But it comes back to another question that I have, which thinking about all the ramifications of the Woody Allen thing. And I should tell listeners that when we're talking about the Woody Allen thing, we're talking about the documentary Allen v. Farrow, which is on HBO, the four part uh, documentary that wound up last week and how Woody Allen allegedly sexually assaulted his seven year old daughter in the state of Connecticut in the attic at Mia Farrow's house there. It was this whole big thing. And then called a press conference and basically ran an op to cover this up 
and go on the attack and paint Mia Farrow as this jilted, scorned lover that was out to get him, who had programmed the child to do this and that. At the same time, he sort of revealed that he was in love with Suni Previn, who was 21 or 22 at the time, but also Mia Farrow's daughter. So it's kind of weird, kind of creepy. And the op worked. I mean, he got away with it. Yeah. He got away with it. He got away with it. He distracted the whole conversation. He hijacked the narrative, got out in front of it, hijacked the narrative, got everybody talking about other things other than what actually was the crime that was being pursued, um, the alleged crime, which was the assault of of this seven-year-old girl. So he, he turned that, he was able to twist and turn that entire thing into a scorned lover narrative about Mia Farrow just being bitter and scorned because Woody was with a younger woman. And even that was a distraction away from, yeah, her daughter. Right. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the child that you were in the house with and that the photo that Mia had found photographs uh, that Woody had taken of Sun Yi and he admitted to taking them and said, okay, he just slipped and he, it was like a, you know, he had a weak moment and he would never do this again, but they were very graphic, uh, sexually graphic, like, you know, willing um, yeah. on Sunya's part. And I believe she was a minor then. She was a teenager in those photographs that Mia found. Uh, I and think that was before Dylan. She was yeah. in high school, I think. I think she was 17, which is above the age of consent in New York okay. State. But still, it's it's creepy. Still, it's inappropriate. It's gross. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's... You know, it's just vile to do that to somebody that you're, and you're in that family unit. I mean, yes, the the, the father the in argument. The unit. Now, the argument was made. Well, he didn't adopt her, and this and that. But it's still, if you're coming in in that context, you you can't do something. She like was that. living in the home as a child in the home, wearing her schoolgirl uniform to her private school every day. This is a this is a girl. Yeah, this was a girl. This was her. It's Mia's daughter. Yeah. Now, something else I was thinking about, just about, this doesn't have to do with spies or anything. This has to do with Hollywood. (laughs) And I thought about the actresses, especially, the actors too, but the actresses, especially, that are in all of these Woody Allen movies subsequent to this all coming out in 92. And people saying, well, they should have done this, that, and the other. Uh, They should have refused to work with him. And I think it's just, I just feel so bad for all of them because to be an actress in Hollywood, you have to work with so many awful people and put yourself in a position to be abused. I mean, it, it, just this week, the Sharon Stone memoir came out where she was talking about... Oh, Sharon. Um, I didn't know Sharon had a the memoir. Out. Filming the um, Basic Instinct and how Verhoeven kind of tricked her into that yeah, scene. Yeah, he did. And when she saw it, it, she smacked him in the face. She did. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and this, but it's you know, and the wine, the Harvey Weinstein thing, which when I when I read the names of all the people that were involved with him that he uh, abused and assaulted, it's it's mind blowing. If you're like, if you're a famous actress and you can't get away from this guy, I mean, who can? What what chance do you have if you're? 18 years old and in Hollywood, I mean, you have no chance. So to say, uh, you okay, you can say no. <laughs> I no, I know, I know, I know, I know. You can, you can say no. It will, will that 
do are these men so powerful that they will then destroy you, especially if they're the personality type that they remember who you are and they will go out of their way to do everything they can do to destroy you. Yeah, that happened to me too. <laughs> like, yes, they do. If you say no, everybody knows it, there was a whole era where it was like, you know, and I'm not an actress, I'm a writer, uh, but that, that fucker Weinstein fucked me over. Right. So it, there, we all know, we all knew, everybody knows, right. That or knew that if you go against these guys, if you say no to them, if you, if you stand up for yourself, they'll probably, you know, come for you. It sounds crazy. And then you think, okay, who am I? Why would I think that would happen to me? Why am I so important? Why would this big, important person waste their time and energy? But they do, they do, they do their, their, the, the blacklist stuff is real. So yes, we could say that about uh, it, everyone has a choice. Everyone could say no. People should have known better. Yes, you're also right. Of like, well, what are you going to do? You could say no to a to to this sort of stepping stone in your career. All that's on the table. I think the thing that doesn't get talked about enough, and Ronan actually, uh, Mia's son, is the one that talked about this. I think, I think he did the. I think some of the work he's done. I think that was the best work he did. Was actually identifying the role that representatives play, right? So the role that agents play, the role that managers play and even publicists play in this whole process of both protecting the men and also seducing, that's kind of the wrong word. That's, I don't want to be unfair, but you know, the actresses are relying on their agents and their managers and their representatives to not send them into a bad situation. Right, <laughs> right. Know? You're, and even if it's just your your identity, your brand, you know, you don't want to, if it's like, okay, five years down the line, if this guy, it really is as horrible as everybody says, and he gets caught, I don't want to be in one of his movies. Like, that's not protecting, if you're an actress, that's not protecting the actress. That's not a stepping stone. That's a, that's a scar. Yeah. Right? And, and so, and then, like, look at what is happening to these actresses. It's like, ooh, when they were in that docuseries, right, the one you're talking about, the Alan uh, Vifero, and they were all sort of coming, either coming to Woody's defense or lavishing praise on him after he had married his mm -hmm. uh, Mia's daughter, <laughs> after, you know, years after these allegations and the abuse and kind of everybody knowing what a creep he was, they don't look good. No. So how did their reps serve them? by sending them into that beastly situation. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, maybe it's just that the town thought the day of reckoning would never come, that there would never be really a me too movement. Well, I think, you know, uh, you know, it's maybe. not like Woody's in know. some isolated uh, incident here that, and I don't think there's been reports of him being abusive on set to the people or anything like that. Whereas other directors and, and there certainly have been and other producers, obviously there have been because with Weinstein and everything. Else. So it, I, yeah. I'm just saying my heart really goes out to, to everybody. It, it, it's, it's just, it's just not fair. And I, I'm, I'm glad that we're, we're starting to shine light on this. And I hope that that more light gets shown on it, frankly. I, I, th I think so. And I think also, most of the actresses, when they were, if they were confronted about it, there was a little series of them. Um, and they're kind of like confronted on the red carpet while they're going into an event with this big explosive question. 
not that that's not part of the job, but I mean, how can anyone be prepared for that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then if your reps aren't preparing you for that, that's on them too. Right. That's on them too. You know, I think everybody just needs to, you know, we can all have a little bit more awareness as we move forward. I think that's, I think that's the way to, the way to go. I think so. I think it'd yeah. be nice. And it's good. It's good that you bring up the reps and the agents and the producers and the people behind the scenes yeah. because our next guest is somebody we sat down and talked about that. This is oh. somebody that you know that you've known for a lot longer than I have because oh. she worked with you on <laughs> Sit Journo. And I'm talking yeah. about Catherine Louise Newfeld, better known as Lou New. Lou New. Who knew? Right? Who knew? Who knew? Yeah, that's a little Lou running knew. joke yeah. that we have. Yeah. It's a running joke. Um, yeah, Kat is. Oh, I'm. I'm. I'm excited that I'm excited to listen to that um, interview. She's. Uh, she's just a an extraordinary person. Probably one of the. I could easily say one of the smartest people I've ever encountered. Just gifted, and a, a former Goldman Sachs trader uh, made her what we will swear on this show. Uh, made her fuck you money, I think early and has been, she was just so good at what she did, but she also knows how the sort of the corrupt machinery works. And you always want people who've been inside the sausage factory to teach you how that sausage is made. Right. But, but herself, just someone uh, I found Kat to have just such great ethics and She's just a great lady. I love, I love her. You know, it's like yeah. if I'm going to pick a, a list of people, okay, who would you hang out with? She's at the top of my list. If I could hang, if we were out of this COVID, when we're finally out of it, you know, that's one of the first people I'm going to hang with because she's just, just such a good person. But she also grew up out here in, um, in California and she knows how this town works too. Uh, yeah, it's a good, that's, that's going to be an interesting interview. I'd be interested in that. It's a good talk. We're, we're going to what, which she calls the three dudes. Um, uh, <laughs> she has I'll, such good, good sayings. I love her. She has I'll, all these little uh, verbal th- things she says. I know. Yeah. She likes to say the word fuckery too, which is which is good. I don't know. She's, I think that's for me. I think I, that's my be. word. It may be. You know, who knew the word? Lou knew the word. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. Do you have any 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 closing thoughts on all the the Woody Allen op things or? Um, um, I think I, I do have this. I, I can't imagine. I know he's this 85 year old gross guy. And I think everybody can kind of very clearly see after if they watch that docuseries and kind of I, I, I don't think it was about a hit job on Woody. It was just it was just showing you the full the scope of the story. Really, uh, he didn't want to participate in that because he probably couldn't control it. But it's really easy and clear to see because you do hear his voice he is recorded you do hear how he speaks when he's not in front of a camera and and this is a real this guy he knows what he's doing Uh, he's he's no dummy um and he i do agree with you in your article that he ran a full-fledged op on mio i'm i don't know how he knew how to do that though at the time it seems like he was getting some help i don't think you can have you know, he's playing both sides of this, of sort of saying, well, I'm the, I'm the victim and, you know, this whole, whole horrible sinister thing was done to me. And yet, well, at the same time, 
doing all these narratives, doing all these very calculated things. And it's like, well, okay, which one is it, guy? Are you the are you the poor victim? Or are you the guy running the narrative? Because you can't you can't have that one both ways. So even though he's 85 and I don't know, I don't want any movies that he's not able to get movies going over here anymore. And I don't think anybody will show up and work for him in the way that they did. Yeah. Um, he'll but I I I kind of sense and I feel like this is a vindictive person. Oh, I yeah. think that's just in his DNA, like Harvey, like these guys, right? And so I can't imagine we've heard the last of it. I really, and so then that gets really dark and gross to think about, but I can't imagine he's just gonna, as old as he is, just let that go. No, he must be furious, I would I would think, but because yeah, yeah. he's, he's, so, he's so close to the finish line here. And yeah, no, not going to make it. You're not going to live out your no. dotage in uh, in harmony. The legacy is done. Yeah, yeah, I think it's over. And you had a you had a uh, someone give you a great insight because we we also were on a, a podcast last night uh, about the the art. We were talking about the art, right? Yeah. And you know, is this one of the situations where we're supposed to separate the art from the artist and all that horseshit that comes up? Um, <laughs> And, you know, and it's like, well, well, what was the art? <laughs> what was the art for? You know, and I think in the case of Woody, and you had a friend of yours make this point to you, and I, I agree with it. That art was part of the op, too. <laughs> yeah. You know, he was he's been running a, a con on us all this time. So it, it's hard to take the take the art at the value of what it is now that we know that something else was underneath it all. If, if he, if he was like a, just a clarinet player, it'd be different. <laughs> That's not what he was. He was telling stories about, you know, uh, killing a scornful exes and getting away with it. You know, <laughs> you know murdering yeah. women and getting away with it. If they were bitter and you wanted to get rid of them and, um, betting teenage girls, right? That's, that's the two themes. Yeah. That's his art. Yeah. That's his, you know, so, uh, it looks like he was just trying to convince us, normalize everything, much in the same way Alan Dershowitz made that argument early in his career or decades ago that uh, that we should get rid of statutory rape. Right? <laughs> same thing. These guys are Themes, really trying, yeah. to, they're trying to convince us. They're trying to set a narrative and convince us that their creepy, gross ways are perfectly normal and they should be able to get away with whatever they want. I think we'll end with this this little tale, uh, which Nia Molinari, who uh, is a contributor at Prevail, who wrote the Fuck You, Rudy Giuliani story, um, she pointed <laughs> out, she ran a clip and posted it in the comments section of, um, of the piece, which is from the film version of Lolita. Lolita, obviously... Oh a famous, very good book about a man and a very young girl. And in the clip, Peter Sellers, who's just sort of this rando, comes across um, James Mason, who plays Humbert Humbert, and has come into the hotel with Lolita. And now the two guys are alone, and he sort of hints at the fact that he knows that it's not his daughter. He knows this guy, this creepy kind of guy, yeah. knows that it's not the daughter. But what we found out is that Peter Sellers and Woody Allen hated each other for some reason. And while yeah. doing that movie, Peter Sellers is doing a Woody Allen impression intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> well, looky there. Mm. Everybody knew.
everybody, everybody knew. That was a long time ago. That was in 68, yeah. I think. No, it might have been before that. Uh, 67. That was it was a while time. ago. So, yeah, yeah crazy everybody times. Knew. Everybody knew. Lou knew. So that's going to segue us into the next into the next section. Lincoln's Bible, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it, as always. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Prevail is brought to you by Glow Stick Army, the new album from Halo. Okay, before we move on to Lou New, one quick correction. The op-ed written by Alan Dershowitz arguing for the elimination of statutory rape, he says in the op-ed that the age of consent should be 15. That's what Dershowitz wrote. Was written in 1997, so five years after the Woody Allen press conference. Just as a point of reference. Again, these guys are all kind of normalizing this bad behavior. That's what they're doing. Lou knew, as I said, was on this fight from the beginning. She was able to unearth great information. She's able to look at things that are pretty complicated and make people like me understand them. She has a background in finance. She speaks Japanese. Like LB said, she's just really, she's one of these freaky brilliant people. Her Twitter handle is at Nina and Tito. Nina, like the name Nina and Tito like the brand of vodka, although they were the names of her dogs. So without further ado, Catherine Louise Newfeld, Lou New. You've been on this beat, this Trump, Russia, whatever you want to call it, organized crime, fuckery beat for longer yeah. than I have. Um, Quite a while. Yeah. You were one of the original uh, people on it. So what I want first to do is ask how you got interested in this. What is your origin story? When did you set up your Twitter account or when did you decide to use your Twitter account to start exposing the bad guys? Yeah. So um, I set up my Twitter account in 2014 and I didn't really start using it until 2016. My husband in 2014, my husband said, hey, I think you'd really like Twitter because it's very political. And I've always been very political. I mean, my husband proposed to me the night that Barack Obama got reelected once we knew that he had been reelected so that he knew it would be a good night. Um, you know, <laughs> I've always been very, yeah, I've always been very focused on politics. I've been a Democrat my whole life. So I started actually using my Twitter account in 2016 after the election. Um, because I was like, what the fuck just happened? And the reason, and most of my explorations have been into finances, corporate shell companies and all of that stuff initially, because my area of expertise is finance and economics. I majored in Japanese studies and economics um, in college. And then I went immediately to Goldman Sachs right after I graduated. I bought traded bonds 
traded municipal bonds at Goldman Sachs for three years and then left and went to a very large hedge fund um, where I was the Asia trader, which meant that I was the person overnight focusing on the Asian market. Um, and I saw a huge amount of fuckery in the Asian markets because this was right around the time when China was opening up some of its companies. So I just saw a, a massive amount of corruption happening. I was trading at the time of the U.S. financial crisis, um, which was quite devastating to the markets, obviously, and to a lot of people. So I just I witnessed a lot of fuckery. I worked at the hedge fund for six years and then I was laid off. And then I went into doing real estate for a little bit. Um, my husband is from Michigan and I had gotten a golden parachute from getting laid off. And so we used it to buy some properties in the Detroit area, fix them up. And now, and now went about. So I, in 2016, I was kind of on the tail end of renovating my properties and I was trying to get a handle on what the hell was happening in the political sphere. I was, convinced that Hillary was going to win. But when she didn't, I wanted to know what the hell had just happened. And so I started doing some research. What I found was really quite disturbing. A lot of the research had already been done. I found like books by Wayne Barrett that exposed Trump's mafia ties, his corrupt business practices, all of that stuff. And I was really disappointed because all of this information was already out there. And it had not made it into the mainstream press during the during the election. And I wanted to know why. Um, and so that's kind of my origin story. I just started doing research and posting stuff on Twitter. I found a bunch of other people on Twitter doing the same thing. And it became like a collaborative effort. And that is how I met LB. Um, and we actually uh, wrote a, a couple of pieces together. Um, exploring this stuff using all open source research. This is at sitjourno.org. Yeah, this is at yeah. sitjourno. And basically, there were two questions. One is, what the fuck just happened? But two is, how the fuck did this just happen? <laughs> and the answer to how the fuck did this just happen is because our media fell down on the job. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They did not expose all of the information that was already out there. Instead, it was like a TMZ kind of bullshit coverage of scandal and intrigues and no focus whatsoever on the fact that this man was so freaking corrupt his entire life. And in fact, his father was corrupt and there was just very little exposure. It could not get you know, people would write, like David K. Johnson would write articles and it just wouldn't get picked up because it wasn't sensational. And so that is the problem. It's weird that the guy that's running for president being a mob money launderer for his entire life isn't sensational because it kind of is sensational. Yeah, right? yeah. it is sensational. You'd think that would be something a media company might be interested in, you know, but Absolutely. no. But yeah. then you look at, okay, well, why did Trump, how did Trump get his, you know, fourth wind? And it's because of media, because NBC made him into this supposedly successful businessman on The Apprentice. And right. they sold the American public a fantasy of who this guy was. And 
then they basically sold the American public a mirage and the American public believed the mirage. And rather than media properties focusing on bursting the mirage, they allowed that mirage to continue throughout the 2015 and 2016 election. And I blame the Republican Party for this, too. Yeah, we're going to get to that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, you go back now and you look at it and you realize how how incestuous the relationships are between the people at these media companies. It's interesting that the characters involved with this are all the same people, that Jeff Zucker was the head of NBC Entertainment who worked on The Apprentice, who greenlit The Apprentice, worked with Mark Burnett to create The Apprentice. And then he went to CNN and became the head of CNN News. CNN gave Trump so much free airtime, covering every rally, everything, treating him not like a a regular presidential candidate that needs vetting that they go after hard, but like a a celebrity, like like entertainment. and. That's the that that the, the media f- failed in a lot of ways, but one of the ways it failed was the way that it that it treated Trump in general, like that kind of thing of, hey, this is the guy from the movies and the show, and isn't this funny? And look what he says, and isn't it amazing? I can't believe this is happening. Wow! Instead of you know going for the for the uh, the throat, which is what they they should be doing. Absolutely, and I think that part of that is just like societal naivete that nobody really thought that this guy could end up being president because his character and who he is as a person is so incongruous with what we think of as the office of the presidency. And so I think it's a society, we had a societal naivete that we didn't think it could happen here. You know, we look at uh, Berlusconi in Italy and we just laugh, like, how did that buffoon, you know, rise to power? And we didn't, it's, we did not think it would happen here. You know, and there's a confluence of factors as to why it did. Um, and him not being covered critically is a main is a main factor of that. But it's not just the supply side of media. It's also the demand side of media. Mm. And the, so when you talk about a societal, if, if it's a societal naivete, people like me didn't think he could be president. And I don't like seeing him on TV and I didn't want to watch that stuff. But other people find that entertaining. And right. so we have this like this media culture of like scandal and drama and real housewives and people yelling at each other on TV all the time. And then, you know, you see that it's reflected in the politics. Um, so it's also that there wasn't demand for the media to cover his corrupt nature and stuff like that. So it's a chicken and egg problem, right? If there isn't demand for, for, you know, real hard-hitting coverage, then hard-hitting coverage is not going to be supplied. It's interesting because I think, I mean, you're definitely right about the supply and demand, but I wonder, I think that the media does have a tremendous amount of power as to what, they can create demand in a sense. They can. In a way, like I, I used to work for the Associated Press and I wasn't a reporter, I worked in human resources, but I used to sit in occasionally at the news meetings every day at whatever time it was, 10 o'clock or something, all the editors from all the places would come and they would basically determine what the top news stories of the day would be. And they would write these down, it'd be uh, 10 or however many there were, and they would distribute this to the member newspapers. And that's basically what would you, you would see on the front page of the paper the next day. And yeah, you shape the conversation. Yeah. Yes. And, and it, it, this isn't nefarious. This is, these are people yeah. that 
you know, but there are certain things or certain themes that I remember thinking, why is this important? Like when I was there, it was during the Elian Gonzalez thing. Remember when the boy came from Cuba yeah. and all that? Yeah. And there was this tremendous media attention on that. Yeah. I remember thinking, why do we, why does this have so much? Do people really care about this that much anymore? Like, it's not like a Cold War thing. It's almost like they had their marching orders from 1958 that we have to keep talking right. about Cuba. And I felt like it's almost a self-sustaining prophecy. Like, we're going to keep covering Cuba, and eventually you're going to get interested in Cuba. In the same right. way that when um, Sheryl Crow's song, All You Want to Do Is Have Some Fun, came out, I remember hearing it the first time being like, I don't like this song, but they played it every 15 minutes and then after a couple hours, you're like, yeah, this okay, it's pretty good. You know, they just they ram it down your throat. So I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, they can determine what we are what we pay attention to if they decide to give it airtime. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the the what what people who have a platform like that need to understand is that they have a responsibility to the public. There's a reason the First Amendment is the First Amendment. The people who are able to kind of shape the national conversation have a responsibility to the nation to shape the conversation in a way that reflects what really matters. You can't separate the demand and the supply because if you look at, I mean, look at Fox News, right? There is so much demand for that kind of irresponsible journalism. And that is why, and there's always going to be people who are willing to give people what they want because everyone wants to make fuck. Right. And so it's like this, I don't know, it's a never ending battle between what uh, is good for the nation and what the people want, which is, you know, stupid drama bullshit. Yeah. Um, You know, we're supposed to eat broccoli and carrots, but we want Big Mac extra value meals. That's it's the same exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah, bread and circuses, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. If we're talking about the media, um, there's what I call the three dudes um, who kind of sold Donald Trump to the public. And we've already talked about one, and that's Jeff Zucker, um, yeah. who greenlit The Apprentice and then went on to be the head of CNN, kind of shaping their bullshit circus coverage of Trump. There's also Ari Emanuel, who I don't know if he still is Trump's agent, but he was Trump's agent who, you know, is the guy who made all the deals that helped Trump get apprentice and all of that stuff. So he really matters. And he's a major player in Hollywood. And then also Mark Burnett, who is the guy who created The Apprentice. He's a good old friend of Putin's. He, you know, was talking about doing a Putin reality show. Right. Um, And he is in he was involved with the inauguration planning um putting on that spectacle and we know that the inauguration funds are being investigated um because they spent you know unknown sums of money on unknown bullshittery um but yeah those three dudes are all very powerful in their respective sectors of media and i do consider emmanuel um a sector of media because it's hollywood and that is part of this whole thing so yeah, and I think it's also important to point out that Ari Emanuel is Rahm Emanuel's brother. Right. Rahm Emanuel, former chief of staff for Obama, former mayor of Chicago. There's a lot of this incestuous kind of stuff going on with, yeah. with these people and a lot of spillover. It's and their not grandfather, all... Yeah, their grandfather was a union organizer in Chicago. 
Um, you know, so they have like a long history of, of on the ground organizing and stuff like that in their family. Yeah. But so, yeah, so I call those guys three dudes because without those three guys, Trump would not be where he is. No, when they, when he came in to do the apprentice, first of all, he was broke. Second of all, and I needed the paycheck, the steady paycheck from NBC to, to sustain his, his lifestyle. And as, as uh, Noel Kassler has, has said many times on many outlets, when they came to Trump Tower to uh, outfit the place for the show, they realized it was a shithole. His office yeah. was terrible. The furniture was old. They had, to, they had to fix up everything and give it a good old Hollywood facelift to make Absolutely. it seem like this guy who is a mob money laundering bankrupt really was a self-made billionaire. None of which is true. I mean, the, I, the funniest thing to me about the whole Apprentice stuff is that that entire stupid show is predicated on the idea that Donald Trump will, at the end of each episode, look at one of the contestants and say, you're fired. But while he was president, he did not say that to anybody. He lacked the courage to say to anybody to their face, you're fired. He 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 did you're it right. tweet. He he did it, you know, when he fired Comey, Comey was like in LA and there was this whole, you know, he found out by watching it on CNN. It was it's insane. So he's yeah. such a fake that he even the tagline that he uses, he couldn't bring himself to use. It's 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 kind of funny if you stop it's and think definitely about it. Is. Yeah. I mean, he was like firing people by proxy because he's a security cat, you know. It's yeah. It's just the whole persona that was created for TV is just an, it's like an exaggeration of the persona that he created for himself in the tabloids in New York in the eighties. Yeah. You know, almost big, you know, in, in the finance industry, there's a phrase called big swinging dick. Yep. Um, BSD, almost mm -hmm. BSD. Um, and that is a, that's the image that Trump tried to create for himself in the eighties crawling into the tabloid and all that bullshit and John Barron, blah, blah, blah. Um, and they just kind of, they took that BSD personality and expanded it with some movie magic. Yes. That's a good way of, of, of thinking about it. That's exactly what he is. He, he's, you know, gecko with the something. I, I, I don't even know. Let's go back and talk about these three dudes for a bit, because I think it's, it's worth dwelling on them because people may know their names but how they're connected, I think it's worth going back and reviewing. So sure. the first one we talked about a little bit already, which is Jeff Zucker. Yeah. He was, again, the president of NBC Entertainment or the head, whatever his title was, who greenlit The Apprentice and became friendly, or if he didn't know him already, was friends with Trump. Yeah. And then went on to run CNN. And CNN, it's interesting that Trump kept attacking CNN as fake news and Jim Acosta, like pointing him out and singling him out and singling out CNN and trying to cast CNN as the Clinton news network or as the democratic arm. When in fact it's his buddy runs the thing. And a lot of the people that they have at CNN, while less obvious than the one at Fox news are no less insidious for the way that they shape their opinions on, on the opinion part of the show. I remember I, I watched CNN the night of the 16 election and Wolf Blitzer seemed positively delighted with the fact that Trump won. He seemed like he couldn't contain his excitement as, as a piece of news. And, and, and it made me want to just go through the TV screen and smack him because uh, we're all you know feeling this horrible uh, misery creeping over yeah. us. 
Zucker sets up this situation where there it, it, it's almost controlled opposition in a sense at CNN. And again, CNN is is good. It's a legitimate news operation. I don't want to create the impression that it's not. But the idea that it is Fox News on the other side is preposterous. It just it simply isn't. You know, that's not how it's set up. Absolutely. And I think that the a good an analogy um, for this is it's just like World Wrestling Entertainment, WWE. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an organization that Trump is quite familiar with, obviously, because Linda McMahon was running the Small Business Administration for him. And the McMahons gave Trump a lot of money for his 2016 campaign. Yes. Um, and Trump has appeared on WWE shows. But it's all it's like fake fights, right? Everybody knows that the wrestling matches are choreographed. The chair banging on someone's head is choreographed. And I wouldn't say that the fights with CNN were necessarily choreographed, but they were a form of theater um, yes. that, you know, it, it's like it's Donald Trump's BSD persona coming out trying to be doing a WWE match with a news outlet and that is you know the news outlet may not be playing that game with him but he's still trying to turn it into a wrestling match it's interesting that you bring up wrestling and sports i'm a big sports fan and i like to listen to shows about sports and this and that and the sports shows are set up that way a lot of the sports shows that are popular are set up for for people are yelling at each other and arguing and if you go behind the scenes, it's like they don't care. They don't really have an opinion about whether Tom Brady is this, that or the other. They're just going to go and say what they're, you know, spoke. by the way, here, make the argument that Tom Brady is the greatest ever. Make the argument that he's not. And they'll go on and they'll sound very passionate about it. But then they leave and they're like, ah, you know, they, they don't actually have an opinion. They're just trying to create what they think is good TV. And I yeah. think it's the same exact thing. When you have a Van Jones arguing with a Rick Santorum, it's it's no different than Howie Long arguing with with somebody on the NFL with Terry Bradshaw uh, on the Fox NFL show, right? Right, and remember, Van Jones is friends with Jared Kushner, and yes. so yeah, that's yeah. you know, it's like these people all know each other. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's the other thing about Zucker is the Sherry Jacobus thing, which is that um, you know she he got her banned from CNN because she went wanted to go on record talking about how Trump had a super PAC when he kept saying that he didn't. She knew that he did. She tried to get the story out and she was cast away from Fox and she was also blacklisted at CNN. So that to me says, okay, they don't even want the real story to appear there. They don't, you know, they don't want anything to do with it. It's it's all about entertainment. It's none of it is about what's really going on behind the scenes. So that's Zucker. I think he's out now at CNN. Isn't he, isn't he supposed to be gone soon? I don't know. I I haven't really been following. I know there was a time when he was gone because he was having some kind of elective heart procedure i believe but i don't know what the what happened. i thought he was i was i read that he was going to be out in february or march of this year okay. i don't know well we can hope yeah um yeah okay the second guy on your list is is the one probably people were the least familiar with in terms of you know relation with trump and that's ari emmanuel yes um he is the head of uh william morris endeavor which is this huge agency uh, in Hollywood that has so much power and clout that it, it's almost, as I understand it, a, a behemoth there. So he has enormous power to get things made or not made and kind of in that way control the the narrative in the pop culture. And the pop culture is so important. You know, which so shows get made, 
which shows don't get made, how you know certain people are perceived in, in the popular culture. I think that's an underrated uh, thing that we sort of take for granted, that these, these movies and shows and stuff like that come out because people want this, that, or the other. But part of it, again, like with the supply and demand, is they create the shows to try to um, hit on certain narratives and certain tropes that uh, reinforce biases and stereotypes. Like I, there was years ago, this is sort of 20, around 2016, the guy at Cracked Magazine, I can't remember his name, wrote a piece about Star Wars and how that, the idea of this, this, this farm boy going against the, the, you know, the empire and this and that. And it's really about rural America versus the cities and the cities are always bad and the corporations are always bad, even though, you know, corporations actually do a lot of nice things. They do. We have a lot of great, here we are on a Zoom call on this lovely device here. It would not be possible without corporations. We would right. be, I don't know what would be, carrier pigeon or something. It wouldn't yeah. be as nearly as fun. You know, there's lots and lots of good things that that, uh, that corporations do. And there's a there's an interesting way to think about it, right? Because the corporation is just a bunch of people working together towards the same goal. Yeah. Now, sometimes those people are real assholes and their goal is fuckery. Um, and sometimes those people are really good people and their goal is doing something great. Yeah. So usually it's a mix and there's some really good people and there's some really shitty people. And oftentimes the shitty people get into leadership because they are more likely to um, fuck over everyone else in order to leapfrog into leadership. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. Corporations do a lot of good. It's not, we're not anti-corporate here, nor are we anti-capitalist. <laughs> no, no, no. That, and that that's, you know, th- this whole, um, that's horseshoe. That, that's a whole other, that's yeah. a whole other conversation. Ari Emanuel, the other thing he, he was, I, he's not Trump's agent anymore, as I understand it. Okay. He, um, he was certainly during all the apprentice and all that negotiation, which means he's making his cut on all of those deals, everything that happens there. He's, you know, behind the scenes, making stuff work. And he can, he has a tremendous power to make things work. Yeah. He's also in 2018, very, um, Jared Kushner has brought uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, MBS, to the United States to search for places to invest his money in the, 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 uh, the Saudi, the, um, the wealth fund, the sovereign wealth fund. Um, which you know more about than I do, because you you know things about money, and I am a English major, and I don't know anything. So Saudi Arabia is sitting on this huge pile of oil. Obviously, they've accumulated a lot of wealth, and it's smart to want to diversify yeah. wealth, right? So it's actually a good thing that MBS is doing this. He comes to uh, California, and Kushner sort of sh- and Kushner's brothers sort of shepherd him around Silicon Valley, and they invest directly and indirectly in a lot of companies. They do yeah. it through the um, SoftBank, which is a um, just an, a, a huge, um, what's it called? It's not a hedge fund. It's a, or is it a hedge fund? Uh, SoftBank venture is, capital. It's venture it's capital. Japanese, yeah, it's like a Japanese venture capital fund. Um, yeah. That would be an accurate way to... Perfect. They own enormous shares in things like Amazon and Netflix in um, you know, entertainment properties, basically. One of the things that... MBS wanted to do was go into a partnership with William Morris Endeavor, which is Emanuel's company. I think it was something like $40 million. He was going 400. It was 400 million. I'm I'm sorry. I only got off by a factor of 10. It's a lot of money. You know, that's real money, right? As they say. um, And after the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, they kind of had to give it back, which is, 
pretty bad when you're you're planning on getting this uh, invest enormous investment of capital. And there was a report that he called up not Trump but Kushner and yelled at him uh, about it. That he was he was furious with. Wow. Yeah. There's <laughs> another there's another like little Ari Emanuel tie-in too, which is that Ari uh, William Morris went into business with UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Mm-hmm. Um, and purchased that from the Fertitta brothers family. And the Fertittas are a long time Texas mob family. They go back, you know, decades uh, in organized crime in Texas. Um, but Ari made a deal to buy UFC. And I don't know if you remember, Trump went to a UFC match um, yeah. and got booed. And it, so I don't know what you know, I don't know the mechanics of how that whole thing was arranged, but I just think it's pretty interesting that his agent is the guy who, you know, put together this deal to buy UFC. And then Trump goes to a UFC match because he thought he was going to be like adored, right? These are his people. The people who watch UFC are his people. And he got booed. Um, and, and that was pretty hilarious. I forgot about that. Yeah. Oh, so the Fertitta brothers, that's Tillman Fertitta. He owns the Houston Rockets now. And has right. already has already ruined the Houston Rockets franchise, and is a horrible owner, and everyone hates him. That's you know, cool. <laughs> word on the street. But I think he's they own a lot of hotels. Like he's really hurting because of the uh, quarantine. Yeah, they're Vegas. They're Vegas hotel dudes. Um, but yeah. their origin story is in Texas, which they you know they glossed over. But yeah, um, so that's Ari's. That's Ari, and the last one is is probably the worst one, which is Mark Burnett. Really shadowy create figure comes here. He's British by, by birth. He's maybe he works. Is he worked for British intelligence or the Navy? He goes, he's fights in a war in like the Falklands. He's involved with that somehow. He oh, winds no. up, he winds up as a nanny in Cal in LA for some reason and starts all this stuff going and kind of stumbles into production and does survivor, which is a shy. I, I is a, uh, basically one of the people responsible for giving us reality TV comma the worst thing ever. I mean, I think it's, it is, it's the death of art. I I hate it so much. It's, it's awful. Um, I agree. Yeah. It's like, why do we even, but this is the the equivalent of just letting the chimps at the typewriter type out the shit and hoping they come up with Shakespeare every once in a while. Yeah. It's, it's, It's this awful fake, um, thing that is that I can't stand. So he does that. He makes his pile of money, and then he goes and he tries to make the show. Did he make the try to make the show about Putin before the Trump show? I can't remember I what the is. the Putin show was after the Trump show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but he also wanted to do some. I think he did like some reality show with Sarah Palin. He did the Alaska he just one. Elevates the worst people imaginable. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically his MO. And he's very slick there. You know, everything's very well presented. When the, the Republican National Convention um, this last time in, in 2020 was a Mark Burnett joint. And that's why Melania, we think, got rid of the trees in the Rose Garden because they needed the they needed that to be flat to do their tracking shot of uh of her walking out and you know looking like some sort of um Che Guevara drag yeah. character or something, right. whatever, whatever look she was going for. The, the semiotics of her outfits and fashion choices are, are an entire show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like an entire series. Um, of <laughs> yeah. Which is, I, I find her to be the least interesting of all of the characters in this, in this whole saga, but uh, it, the, the, she's so out of touch with, with reality. So, and Mark Burnett never let up. Now he supposedly has these tapes of the, the outtakes 
of The Apprentice where Trump is using the N-word and is abusive to people and this, that, and the other, which finally, I think recently, Holly Pete, you know, said, yeah, that, I, that did actually happen. I heard that. Um, people are starting to come forward now that it's too late. Right. Um, um, and it's interesting because his excuse for not releasing the tapes, I believe, was that it was the tapes were owned by MGM. Yeah. And MGM is connected to Cerberus and Feinberg, who were kind of, you know, they're, they're all tied into the money guys who um, who support Trump. So there's a lot of incestuous business happening there. But yeah. yeah. So without yeah. those three guys, we don't have we don't have Trump. Yeah, absolutely. Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tarashenko provided the Russian voiceover. Thanks to Stephanie St. John for the narration. Thanks to Allison Gill, Jason Smith, Mackenzie Mazell, and everyone else involved with producing this podcast. Please subscribe to the Prevail website. Visit gregoliar.com. That's G-R-E-G-O-L-E-A-R.com. Until next time, we shall prevail. <laughs>